Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato, uh, and honored to serve as the moderator of today's book forum. Uh, a commonality across explanations of the financial crisis uh, is the special role played by housing. While many asset classes, such as commercial real estate, also went boom and then bust, the adverse impact of housing does appear unique. Several commentators have reached this conclusion. What makes the object of today's book forum unique, in my opinion, is two distinct facts. One is the robust and repeated experimental finding that markets, which have characteristics like the housing market, regularly display bubble behavior. The second is that housing has almost always played this role in US recessions, at least post-war recessions. We are fortunate to have a very distinguished panel of economists with us today to discuss this topic. First, we are here from the authors of Rethinking uh, Housing Bubbles, Vernon Smith and Steve Gerstad. In addition to serving as a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, Vernon Smith is the recipient of the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economics and a professor of economics at Chapman University. His uh, receipt of Nobel Prize was his work in experimental. Uh, he has done a tremendous amount of work outside of that field as well, uh, and is certainly, in my opinion, one of the most astounding economists over the last 100 years. Uh, Stephen Jurstad is a presidential fellow at Chapman University. In addition to Stephen's wide-ranging scholarship in economics, he's also done a fair amount of software development, having held positions at IBM and Hewitt Packard. Um, so he's actually got a useful skill set in addition to the economics. Uh, offering comments on the book will be Dean Baker, who is the co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research here in Washington. Dean has written extensively on housing bubbles, including his 2009 book, Plunder and Blunder, the Rise and Fall of the Bubble Economy. Although I will have to admit, I think my favorite Dean Baker book is The Conservative Nanny State, How the Wealthy Use Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer. So Dean is uh, certainly a master at coming up with uh, creative titles. Uh, whenever I want an honest, consistent, progressive view on, on economics, Dean is the first place I turn. Uh, I also think Dean deserves a considerable amount of credit for identifying the housing bubble I think the first time we met was about 10 years ago when Dean came to Capitol Hill to debate the uh, then, then chief economist of Fannie Mae, Dave Burson. Uh, I suspect I might have been the only person in the room who walked away convinced that the housing market was going to turn. So Dean at least got one person to, 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 to be aware of it at the time. Uh, so with that, I want to thank you as the audience and turn the podium over to Vernon. Well. Mark, thank you very much for that lively uh, introduction. It's always a great pleasure to come to Washington because I come to Cato. And, and, and it's, uh, I, I really, Steve and I very much appreciate that Cato has given us this uh, opportunity. Uh, as I think you know, and as Mark mentioned, uh, we don't come to this from the traditional uh, uh, work in macro or monetary economics, but we became intensely interested in the Great Recession from the perspective of our background in having seen hundreds of bubbles in the laboratory with a wide range of subjects. It isn't just undergraduates. Uh, in frustration in 1989, I flew into Chicago and we put a bunch of over-the-counter traders in, a, in one of our experiments, and boy, we got a nice bubble. And of course, corporate executives and, and all kinds of people. Uh, the, and, and when we began this uh, topic, we, as I say, we, 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 started, we started with the Great Recession, um, basically, which is pretty well documented. And we went through that quite carefully and felt we understood a lot of the, what was uh, the buildup and what was going on. And then we went back to the Depression. And by the way, our, 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 our immediate uh, our reaction to having uh, studied the Great Recession is that this, this has got to be an outlier in terms of the importance of housing. We went back to the Great Depression, and ladies and gentlemen, we saw the same thing. And then we went to all the post-World War II recessions. None of them were even close to what these bookends were the one in 29 and 2008, and it was all about balance sheets on those two in the Depression and the Great Recession. And <clears throat> so our title kind of tells you our storyline. Housing routinely leads to ordinary recessions, 
but only rarely presages a balance sheet crisis and ex explains why we are stuck. Okay, proposition one, the Great Recession and Depression viewed as balance, uh, as household bank balance sheet recession crisis. And I want to spend a little time on this slide because this really uh, tells you where the pain is all co coming from as well as where the ebullience originally came from. Uh, this, is <clears throat> this is the uh, value of the U.S. housing stock, single and multifamily homes, okay? And it's rising, that red line, it's rising partly because pri prices are rising because, and also we're pumping more of them into the market, okay? So that total value is, is, is rising really pretty spectacularly. Why did we begin in 1997? We see that as a critical takeoff year. There were two previous um, uh, inflation-adjusted bubbles in prices. One peaked out in 79, the next one peaked out of, in 89, and, and prices came down, and then they started up in 1997. Uh, we believe that an important initiating event there was the Tax Relief Act of 1997. Uh, Bill Clinton had upstaged the Republicans on uh, tax cuts and proposed, uh, as I recall, the details of a, that everybody, house, uh, anyone who, who held a home within for two years of a residence could take up to a $500,000 capital gain tax-free to the bottom line. And uh, you, you choose one asset out of the many that people have invested in, and you sweeten it like that, you can expect there to be some incentives to invest in that asset. Enormously popular. Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, I believe all love that, by and large. Uh, so that's why we're beginning in 97 here. Uh, interesting that in 2001, by the end of 2001, households, uh, I mean, the, the price of houses had reached the previous 1989 uh, inflation-adjusted peak. The point is we had a roaring good infla uh, uh, inflation in house prices already going on in 2001. Expectations. Uh, Self-reinforcing expectations of rising prices were, were, were pretty well entrenched, and that's before subprime loans, mortgage-backed securities, derivatives were kind of uh, very prominent on the, on, the, on the horizon. And that fueled a huge, considerable uh, peak. Notice here that the value of homes is going from from about a little over 10, uh, skyrocketing up there to, to about 22 uh, uh, trillion. Okay, here is debt. This is uh, the mortgage debt held against all of those homes. Uh, the difference is equity, and equity is rising uh, because the values are rising somewhat are rising somewhat faster than, uh, than mortgage debt. And then it turns around in 2000, it flattens basically in 2006, prices and also this, and then starts down. And of course, it crashes against fixed longer-term debt. And so all of the pain is, is uh, felt on, the, on household, household equity. Uh, and and notice here that equity in all homes is about $6 trillion at the beginning of 1997. After the collapse and clear down into 2011 and a little further if you go further, it's back, it's down to 5.5 trillion. We lost a half a trillion dollars in about 15 years. You wonder why we're stuck? All kinds of people. Uh, in homes, if they're not underwater, they have seen them far more valuable in the recent uh, past. Okay, and to give you, I just want to have you focus on the second uh, uh, 
row here, a, a data row, because everybody talks about how, you know, income distribution and, and what's happened to that. But, but the really big damage here has been done from 2000, going from 2007 to 10 in net worth. You see what, what happened here from going from 2004 to 7, you had nearly an 18% increase in the median. Uh, median household net worth, about a 13% increase in the mean. That, that's telling you that uh, people below the middle are being made better off relative to the, the, uh, the ones above. Those programs designed to try to help people of modest means by increasing their wealth through, through home ownership, they were working. Yes, but comes the collapse and it falls 39% nearly. This is back to levels not seen since the early 90s. It's incredible, the, the, uh, the, the, that impact. And then most recently in the survey of consumer finances, we're seeing not too much change here, a little bit of decline in, in the median, none in the mean. <clears throat> uh, okay, now here is the uh, same kind of a chart for the 1920s and the 1930s. Here's, here's the value of all homes. Here's debt rising. Notice, though, a, an important difference. And that is, in uh, leading up to the Great Depression, starting in 1929, uh, equity rose somewhat, but really not very fast. Uh, prices didn't go up all that much. Uh, my home. So it was about something like a 30, 25 to 30 percent increase in prices over that whole period. The supply of homes was clearly quite elastic. A lot of new homes were being built, of course. And, <clears throat> but, and, and I think that tells us, we talk about in the book, that a, a big price up, a price run up is not a necessary condition for really great pain. Uh, after a credit-fueled housing boom. The prices don't have to go up that much, and that was true here, but they certainly collapsed. And I want to point out here an important... Uh, in 1929, here's the equity on all U.S. homes. That didn't recover until 1940. It took 11 years for us to crawl back up. To, and remember, most people's, most people's wealth's in their homes. It's not in the stock market. So this is, this is grabbing most of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of families that are at least well enough off uh, to have a home. And we argue in the book that uh, in balance sheet, recessions, not only does monetary policy fail to be effective, but fiscal policy fails to be effective, and for the same reason. Too many damaged household balance sheets, and the banks are on the other side of those damaged balance sheets, so the, so the banks have damaged balance sheets. Uh, now, <clears throat> what that means is, finally, as we interpret this, equity is finally being kind of crawling back up to its old level. Now, fiscal policy works the way we frequently expect it to work, okay? And, 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 uh, uh, and always people are, are reporting, uh, reporting that what got us out of the Depression was, was deficit financing build up for the war. But that does not mean that if it happened in 1930, it would have been any different than what fiscal policy gave us in, 19, in 2008 and 2009. Okay, uh, proposition two, why stock market crises do not cause enduring household bank balance sheet crisis. And here's uh, the basic chart. Here's the Dow Jones index, and here's margin debt. Okay, when... Uh, Stock market goes up, margin debt goes up in step. When it, when it falls, margin debt comes right down. The balance sheets are cleaned up day to day. For one thing, there's 50% margins, and for another, they're call loans. 
Okay, so it's, it's a much different animal than, than housing. The uh, Federal Reserve didn't understand this proposition, uh, Proposition 2. In 2005, uh, Alan Greenspan had scheduled a, uh, a conference on housing issues in April of 2005 after the meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee. And the question is, is there a housing bubble? Answer, yes. Yes, there's a housing bubble because prices have risen relative to rents, spectacularly, and relative to median income, kind of more fundamental measures of, of value. So yes, but what was the conclusion? Well, uh, it, it seems clear the magnitude of the current potential problem is much smaller than and perhaps only half as large as that of the stock market bubble. And he's, Williams is referring here to the dot-com crash and its impact on G, uh, GDP was fairly minor. We had a very minor recession. $10 trillion came off the value of stocks, minor recession. $3 trillion came off of the value of homes in 2007 and 2008, and, and the economy was tanking. Okay, uh, Proposition 3. The ordinary business cycle is the consumer housing cycle and does not damage balance sheets. Okay, the ordinary housing leads, housing expenditures leads recessions in 11 of the last 14 recessions. Uh, only two balance sheet crises, the first one here on the right and this last one on the left. In between, housing is always leading, but the, but the Federal Reserve never con loses control over the ability to bring the economy back but with low interest and housing comes back, okay? Uh, and here's, here's a decline, and the, and the recession didn't occur right away. That's the Korean War. When you don't have a lot of, of damaged balance sheets, government expenditures will trade off against others, yes. And the same thing in the Vietnam War. Big increase in government spendings here kind of moderated that effect, but that's a different world than the two on either side. Okay, and now to give you, here, here's four of the post-war, World War II recessions, and you'll notice here that you don't have anything like the impact on equity in these cases, and here in the, in the double-dip recession, 80 and 80 is hardly a ripple. So <clears throat> I think that chart does a lot to tell you that, that story. Okay, I'm gonna turn it over to Steve because, because we have these these are rare, okay? You get, you, we've had two in 80 years. There's not a lot of US experience with this. We've gone uh, internationally, okay, and looked at, well, Sweden and Finland and Japan, and, and Steve's gonna give you that story, okay? Thank you. <clears throat> okay. So, I'm gonna, so I'm, I, I do wanna mention a couple of things. So there, there are estimates of the losses that banks suffered during the Great Depression that we've included in our book and from, from a survey of, of household finances by Wickens in the, at the Department of Commerce. And what he did is he examined how many people were behind on their mortgages and how much they were behind. These were from, from surveys of, I think, 80,000 households. And from that, we've estimated that the total amount of losses to the banks from both delayed payments and from foreclosures in the Great Depression was approximately 12 times what it was in the Great Recession. Um, we, I've also gone through the, the New York Stock Exchange yearbook, and they deleveraged their um, their call loans on stocks from a little over eight billion to just a little bit over four billion in six weeks after the stock market crash in 1929. So, and then I've also looked at all of the bankruptcies of stock brokerage firms that ensued from the collapse of the stock market in 1929. And there were about six and they amounted to something on the order of about $20 million. So they're off by a few orders of magnitude on the kinds of problems that could have caused the Great Depression, could have caused the collapse of the financial system. 
So I think that you know a reassessment of that based on the magnitudes of the losses that were suffered from the bank by the banks from real estate and from stocks is probably warranted. I think we've you know initiated that. Um, the problem, as Vernon mentioned, is that it's really un, it's very difficult to unwind a real estate loan for the banks. The as long the the asset value can be declining substantially, and the homeowner can be making their payments or even now not making their payments, and the bank is seeing the value of its security collapse. But in the stock market, that's not the case. They can sell those assets really in 24 hours with a call loan. So they've got a lot more security in equities markets and, and other securities than they have with real estate. Um, it's even quite difficult with commercial real estate, although they don't have the same level of protections that homeowners have. Um, I also want to then look at what's happened in other countries like Finland. And um, the, the, there, they had a very large stock market bubble excuse me, housing bubble in the 1980s, they went through a, you know, a de jure liberalization of financial markets and there was an inflow of foreign investment and also much more aggressive lending by the banks in Finland. And they had a very large increase in the amount of mortgage debt outstanding and a large increase in the prices. When that collapsed, that left the banks on the other side of the homeowner's losses. When, you know, so one way to think of that diagram that Vernon put up with the red line for housing assets, the blue line for housing debt, and then the black line for housing equity is those are averages. And on average, everything's okay. The households have equity in their homes. But the tail of that distribution is where homeowners are in negative equity and oftentimes failing to make payments on their mortgage um, or um, going into foreclosure. And the banks end up holding the bag on that. They end up absorbing a lot of losses. So the banks in Finland absorbed a lot of losses. Their GDP was about 500 billion marka. So they were losing, a they were, these are recognized losses in the banks. So they were losing about 4% of GDP at the height of their crisis or the depth of it. The, in 92 and 93, they were losing about 4% of GDP on loans that they were writing down. And their financial system was, the total assets in their financial system was probably about, I think it was about 8 um, 80% of GDP. So they were losing about 5% of their asset value on write downs per year. It was catastrophic for the financial system and they had to come in and intervene massively. But they did a couple things differently from the US. One was that the equity holders were in, in most cases wiped out. In a couple of cases they were given little side payments to go away but they took the control of the bank away from them. And that meant that any new capital that was invested into the banking system was going to be, um, the, the, the people who made those investments were going to become 100% owners of the firm. Unlike the US, which bailed out the homeowner, uh, excuse me, bailed out the equity holders and therefore, any new investment that would come in subsequently would have to be shared with them. That slows down the repair process in the banks. Um, by contrast, oh, and, and just in terms of what happened in Finland, the key point here is that the purple series shows the, the level of fixed investment relative to its level at the peak of the business cycle in the fall of, or in the, the fourth quarter of 1989, that was growing very rapidly in the run-up. And this is a consistent pattern that we find in these very large um, booms and collapses. When the Finnish economy collapsed, it fell by 12.4%, which is about two and a half times as bad as what we experienced in 2008 and 2009. So it was a very dramatic collapse, and they had a 50% collapse in fixed investment. This is a very typical pattern. 
um, in, in booms and busts. We see this in, we don't see the same recovery path, but we see the same pattern in Spain, in Portugal, in Ireland, um, in Iceland, and in the US. Um, so um, so that, that's an important factor. What they did is, you know, and very quickly, they just allowed their currency to depreciate. They had a massive recovery of exports. Exports had been flat and even declining as a percentage of GDP for close to a decade. During the entire boom, their export sector was not doing well, and they had very large current account deficits. So they're absorbing money from the rest of the world. They're using it to build houses and office buildings and various other structures, and they're not returning anything to the rest of the world other than promises. And after the collapse of the market, their exports really boomed, and they about doubled in about five years, and they, they continued growing right up until the eve of the 2008 financial crisis. They didn't decline until then. So by contrast, if we look at Japan, they had also a very large increase in housing prices. The three lines here just show three different house price indexes. They're all fairly consistent with one another. They had a collapse in about 1990, almost simultaneous with the, with the, Jap with the um, Finnish collapse. And they continued to decline for 14 years and fell by 65%. Um, it also had a dramatic impact on their financial system, but they stretched out the recognition of those losses for more than 12 years. So they, they told the banks, pretend that those assets are okay. Just go on doing what you're going to do, what you've been doing. And what that does to a bank is that it makes it very difficult to, to, uh, to attract new capital because in potential investors are looking at a bank that has assets that are worth much less than its liabilities. It's going to have to go through a process of collecting earnings on its good part of its portfolio, paying down that debt, and finally coming out healthy after 10 years, and then they're going to have profits that can be distributed to the investors. So any rational investor would just wait that process out. In the meantime, the banks are trying to get their equity ratio in a healthier position. So one way to accomplish that is to reduce your assets and reduce your liabilities and, take, and your equity position becomes a larger fraction of a smaller, uh, part of, uh, a smaller pool of assets. So that's... Part of the explanation then for why, or I think a, a major part of the explanation for why the total assets of the banking system in Japan were falling at about 2% a year for more than a decade. Um, and in terms of fiscal policy, that didn't help Japan. This is something that I think you know, people like uh, Joe Stiglitz and Paul Krugman and others have not been attentive to. So what this shows is the blue line shows GDP, which grew a total of 8%, about a half a percent a year between 1997 and 2012. All the while, the, the black line shows what were happening to government expenditures and the red line to government revenues. So they went from about 45% of GDP in central government debt to about 150%. And that, that didn't solve the problem. So neither the regulatory forbearance in the banks nor the fiscal stimulus has helped the Japanese get out of this. And I think that's a, a, an observation that really needs to be confronted by, um, by the proponents of these policies. And I think that is the end. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks. I appreciate also Mark's compliments. I always say um, I've always appreciated having some feedback from Mark as a principled libertarian who I know will not just give a party line here. So I really appreciate that. 
Um, I enjoyed the book. There's an awful lot in here, and I would made some notes beforehand. I, I will focus primarily on the material presented here, but I do just want to comment on, on a few things in the book. Um, first off, just some quick points that I, I thought were you know very worthwhile and I really appreciated. One, um, I really did appreciate that we that the discussion talks about how the bubble was driven on the private side, that the worst loans were issued by the the investment banks, the New York investment banks, not Fannie and Freddie, which, you know, Mark will tell you, I'm happy to criticize Fannie and Freddie, U.S. government housing policy. But the reality was, if you look at the worst of the subprime loans, those were being securitized by Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, not by Fannie and Freddie. Um, and, you know, it's one of these things I think we should just be able to agree on because the data, to my view, is pretty clear. And that's, you know, mentioned, uh, they mentioned in the book. Second point that they did refer to here, um, the bubble, and I would very much agree, they have it beginning in 97. Um, that, that is important for some things. Um, I, we did see uh, accelerating house prices. They began to diverge from their long-term trend. Um, you did have the change in the law. I guess I look at the stock bubble, seeing that those two grew side by side. doesn't matter for the point here. I think it is, you know, when we want to do base years, when we want to make comparisons, I've been in some exchanges recently with the Urban Institute where they've been looking at 2001. They're saying, oh, we'd have so many more mortgages. We just had the same number as 2001. And I go, well, 2001 was already during the bubble, you know. So if you compare it to, you know, 94, 95, 96, which was well along in the recovery, we had relatively low unemployment rates. We're, we're about where we were, you know. So I don't see us as missing a lot of mortgages. And I think 2001 is the base year is mistaken because it's already part of the bubble. Um, also, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the idea the focus should have been on bailing out homeowners uh, rather than banks. Uh, you know, I think our, our, our policy here was really a disaster from almost any perspective, recovery or fairness, however you want to put it. Um, I, I will just point out, and, you know, I'm sure you're aware of this, I mean, there, there are problems, you know, and, you know, Mark labored with this, I labored this, how you would bail out homeowners, how do you do this, and specifically the, the point, you know, that I and others have made is at least at the beginning, home prices were still falling. You know, so you had a lot of people underwater in a mortgage uh, where the house house price was still falling. You know, I'm thinking of 2008, you know, 2009. House prices didn't bottom out until 2011. I'll come back to that in just a second. Well, what do you do? You go, okay, we're going to make you whole. Now you have, you know, we'll write down your mortgage to the value as of 2008. And guess what? Come 2011, you've lost another 20%. Do we do it a second time? I mean, you know, there probably are ways to deal with this, but I'm just pointing out there are some complexities. And so it wasn't that simple how you deal with that. What I wanted to mention, and, and I, I just, I, this is kind of a pet grieve for me because it's, you know, to my mind, one of the most boneheaded policies ever. And it just has disappeared. I don't think you guys mentioned it. The first time homebuyers tax credit. Um, this was part of the stimulus package. Uh, it went to effect in, in uh, February, I guess it would have been March of 2009. And it had like absolutely predictable effect. We give people up to $8,000 to buy a home, time limited. So you see it very clearly in the data. Guess what? House prices stop falling and they actually start to rise. Um, and you could see it in the sales. It was supposed to end in, I think it was October. There's a big flood of sales just to, to qualify. Then they extend it to April of 2010. Okay, then it does finally end. And guess what happens? House prices start to fall again. Okay, so we encouraged millions of people to buy homes at bubble inflated prices. To my view, that is ungodly stupid. Now, that got a lot of banks off the hook because who held the mortgages on those loans? Well, a lot of those were privately held. The new mortgages were all Fannie and Freddie, okay, or FHA in many cases. That explains some of the problems with the FHA. It was ungodly stupid policy from any perspective except helping the banks. And then I'm going to take a little shot at uh, Timothy Geithner because I got stuck reading his book. He, he, he really really kind of takes the cake here. I have lots of things I can go on about Timothy Geithner, but he has a chart in house prices. And he goes, look at this. We had all these great policies. You know, we had the stimulus. We had, you know, the uh, quantitative easing. Uh, it might have been before that, qualitative, quantitative easing, whatever. He doesn't mention the first-time homebuyer's tax credit. And he shows we got house prices to stop falling, and they started to rise. And where does this chart end? April of 2010. you got to be kidding me. You know, and as I say, that really kind of takes the cake. Okay, but but enough of that. Let me let me deal with uh, some of the substance presented here. Um, I, I have to say, I'm not a fan. I've had arguments with a lot of people about the balance sheet recession view, and I actually don't think that's the story. 
So I think you're absolutely right in focusing on the bubble. And of course, I was talking about the bubble. So I'm, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say yes. I think the collapse of the bubble was what gave us the downturn, what gave us such a serious downturn. But I think the balance sheet is the less important part of the story. And my reason for saying that is fairly simple. If we look at what people are spending, um, they're actually spending pretty about as much as we might have expected them, and maybe even more. So regardless of what metric you want to use, you know, we could look at the savings rate out of disposable income. Is that historically very low level, not as low as it was at the peak of the bubble. So it's not as low as it was back in, you know, 405, 06, 07. But it's, it's very low. If you want to just skip and go, what's consumption as a share of GDP? That's fairly high. You know, again, not quite as high as it was at the peak of the bubble, but it, it is pretty high. So I go, well, what what aren't we seeing that we should be seeing? And, you know, as I say, on the consumption side, um, I think we're seeing pretty much what we should be seeing in total consumption. Now, the points about how this has affected the wealth of typical households, that's exactly right. I was, you know, looking at the survey of consumer finance data just the other day, I mean, independently of this, and, you know, it really is striking. I mean, of all these people who are near retirement age, and I'm not talking about at the bottom, they, they didn't have money before, they don't have it now, but middle-income people, they they have almost no wealth. They have homes that, you know, they're, they're you know, 35% equity um, or nearly go back a decade, they had, you know, 70, 80% equity. You know, most people, when they hit retirement age, they had most of their home paid off. So there's been a marked deterioration in people's wealth. And, you know, undoubtedly that is affecting their, their standard of living and probably affecting their consumption. But I think it's been made up by people spending at the higher end. So we're not seeing a shortfall in consumption. So question is, okay, so then why is it, you know, it's 2014 and we still are below potential GDP full employment by most measures. Well, to my view, it's kind of a simple story. The housing bubble was driving the economy. So first and foremost, construction, residential construction was 6.5% of GDP back in 2005 at its peak. It ordinarily, if you go back over the prior two decades, three decades, it was around 4% of GDP. Okay, so we're about, about 2.5 percentage points. We weren't going to get back to those bubble peaks. And in fact, we fell as low as 2% for the simple reason we had enormous overbuilding. You know, if you're building 6.5% of GDP, you get enormous overbuilding, and we had record high vacancy rates. We still have unusually high vacancy rates. Aaron had records. They're down from where they were. But that's prevented construction from coming back even to its normal level. It's around 3%. I'd have to check the exact number. I think we're a little over 3% GDP. So we probably still have a percentage point to go. But that's totally predictable in terms of the overbuilding. The other part of the story, the consumption, well, we haven't gotten back to the bubble peaks, and I don't expect us to. There's no reason to expect that. People have to save. So I don't think it would be healthy. I don't expect that. You know, so basically, we're looking at a shortfall, and just to be very simplistic about it, a shortfall in demand, we have a big trade deficit. So you know, we have a trade deficit a little more than 3% of GDP, $500 billion a year. So you go, where do we fill that? Well, I would take issue with the fiscal policy. I think there's a lot of studies. I've done some work. The IMF is probably the best source here. To my view, they, they show pretty compellingly that fiscal policy has to work. And I think the, the important thing is looking at the active. You know, if you look at separate out passive, we always get higher deficits every time we go in a downturn because we're collecting less in taxes, we're paying out more for unemployment benefits, other transfers like that. If you look at active fiscal policy, I think you do find a very strong relationship between active fiscal policy and GDP growth. So I think, you know, again, that could fill that gap due to the trade deficit, but, you know, we've gone the other way. We've had austerity since uh, 2011, so that's been contractionary. The last point that I just want to make, and I think, you know, again, in the same spirit as to, you know, my view of what these downturns look like, I don't think the, the recession from the stock market crash was mild. I know that's a conventional wisdom, and, you know, if you look at the GDP numbers, the timing, you know, was six months, seven months, about as short as a recession could possibly be, and the contraction, you know, we lost, I don't know, six-tenths or five-tenths of percent GDP. So it's relatively mild by that measure. But if you look at it at the labor market, we began, we got in the recession in March of 2001. We didn't start to create jobs again until September of 2003. And we didn't get back the jobs we lost until January of 2005. So we went almost four full years with no net job growth. That's far and away the longest period without net job growth since the Great Depression. We surpassed that in the more recent downturn. But at that point, that was the longest period without net positive net job growth. So I don't see that as being that mild a recession. The basic story I would say is that there too, we had an economy that was being driven by the bubble. There was a huge investment boom, 98, 99, 2000, associated with the dot-coms. 
Secondly, a consumption effect. We saw uh, savings, again, fall very low, the lowest they, they were until the housing bubble. And there was nothing easy to replace that. So when we got to 2001, you know, we, we got the downturn and we lost that demand. There was no easy mechanism to replace it. And I would argue we didn't finally start to see decent growth in job creation until we saw the demand from the housing bubble. So to my view, that wasn't an easy recession to come out of. It wasn't a balance sheet recession, you know, as, as Vernon and Steve have said, you know, you didn't see people accumulating big debts. But the point was, there was a big loss of wealth. And that wealth had been driving consumption, in addition to, you know, the fact that people could issue shares of dot whatever, raise hundreds of millions of dollars. And some of that, a lot of that was invested. So long and short, I think here, there's a lot here to like, I appreciate, you know, much of the book, a lot of original research. But I think the basic story, the balance sheet recession, I'd have to disagree with. Thank you, Gene. Let me give uh, Vernon, uh, Steve, a minute or two to, to respond before we open it up to questions. I, I think the, it's important to recognize that there's no painless way out of what we call a balance sheet recession. And you see uh, small countries, uh, uh, the recovery process involves uh, the pain of a major depreciation of the currency. You see that in South Korea. Uh, we've, we've seen it in other, uh, other uh, Asian countries. We see it in, in Finland. It's, it's a very painful process, but we think it's important to, to recognize that the, 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 the incumbent, incumbent investors you see, are always going to have a substantial amount of influence over the political process. And uh, they are, uh, they contribute to, to uh, political campaigns. They're very visible. Uh, the people that are, the investors are going to be part of the recovery are invisible. You don't know where they're going to come from. And the problem is that if you protect incumbent investors, uh, you're giving them a claim on the f uh, future output and activity of the economy. They share that claim with any, any uh, new investors that come in, and that dilutes the claim and reduces. This is not a supply-side argument. It reduces the amount that's, that, that you can uh, pay. I, I like to use an example uh, to bring that home. Uh, Henry Ford was producing the Model T in 1900. By 1920, he had produced over half the automobiles that had ever been produced in the world. Okay, meantime, the carriage makers, the livery stables, and the, and the horse breeding farms were going a bankrupt. Imagine that the system involved a sharing of his return with these incumbent investors. Uh, and, and you can see the, the, the potential of that to slow down uh, growth. Capitalism is very much a loss system and not only a, pro, a profit system, and that's sort of the hidden cost of, the, of our too-big-to-fail program. Steve, Well, I, I might give a little bit of ground on, um, on Dean's point on the balance sheet, but, but what I think is kind of key is that in the development of a bubble, there's oftentimes a lot of credit that's involved. It pushes up asset prices. It also pushes a lot of new investment in those assets. They're fixed reproducible assets. So the stock of them grows so large that the return on them is abnormally low. The collapse on almost all of these, I mean, if we look at South Korea and Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand in, in the East Asian crisis of 97, 98, the Nordic crisis in 92, 93, um, what some people have called the North Atlantic crisis in 2008, um, with you know, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Ireland, the United States, Iceland, all of them have gone through a process of an asset bubble and an, and an unusual level of development to those fixed assets. The, when the appreciation of those assets ceases, then the rationale for a lot of the, the development of them, the production of them, ceases. 
And in almost all of these, if you look quantitatively at the decline in GDP, the quantitative decline is very close to the decline in the, the level of the production, the dollar or, or you know, monetary amount of the production of the fixed assets. So that's a big part of the story, and something has to restore that. There's got to be a way for, and oftentimes they're associated with large capital inflows. So that part of the story, I think, is in, is in really in controversy. I mean, the, the facts are just there. It's happening all over and over again. And let me say, I do think that having, you know, I found one of the uh, great things about reading the book is that you've got a lot of good history on the various crises and the various recessions post-war. And so there really is a great overview of, uh, of unfortunately, American recessions as well as some global ones there. So to me, it's a tremendous, tremendous resource and reference piece as well. Um, let us open up the questions, and I remind you to please have your question actually in the form of a question rather than the statement, and if you could identify yourself, that'd be appreciated. And also, please wait till the microphone gets to you and speak into the microphone. We'll let Bert have the first question, and again, Bert, wait till the microphone gets to you. Um, thank you. Bert Ely, uh, banking and monetary policy consultant. Um, first of all, I look forward to, uh, to reading the book because I think it's going to reinforce a lot of my own um, uh, premises on uh, the financial crisis. I want to uh, address one specific aspect that I don't think you really uh, touched on very much today. If a bank makes a loan and it keeps it on its books uh, and there's a and the borrower has a problem, you go through a loan restructuring process and the bank might write it down, might uh, uh, write it off, and uh, losses are taken and everybody uh, moves on, including the borrower. But what we have had in recent years is an enormous amount of mortgage securitization, where mortgages get sold to third parties. And then we have had a tremendous challenge, uh, uh, both analytically as well as legally, in terms of having an adjustment in those mortgages and the appropriate write-downs and so forth. My question is this. To what extent have you uh, addressed the, uh, the question of the uh, of the complexity or the complications and delay caused by the mortgage securitization process? And have you considered uh, how much better or quicker things might have uh, uh, worked themselves out or, or more slowly if banks, in fact, had kept mortgages on their balance sheet rather than securitizing them? It would have made the world much simpler. There's no question about it. Uh, and also, there were, there were really a lot of incentive incompatibilities that were involved uh, with, with the changes that went on in the way in which uh, mortgages were, 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 uh, were financed. Uh, for example, one of, the, one of the institutions that grew, so fa uh, grew like Topsy was loan origination and separation from, uh, from traditional banking. Uh, and uh, th they got upfront fees. That's a really bad property rights system. Okay, what we proposed in our book. Uh, uh, this is an example of of the need to of how you would achieve incentive compatibility between uh, loan originators and what you would expect if that uh, loan had stayed with a bank. Is the, is the following proposal. What, whatever the loan origination... See, I don't know whether loan origination should be separated from banks. That's a, that is a, a market decision. If the separation is made, the fee we propose should simply be uh, uh, escrowed into the loan payments and spread over the life of the loan in proportion to principal deduction. That gives the loan originator the same kind of incentive that a lender would have. So you make an interest-only loan, no principal for 10 years, you don't get any uh, a fee for 10 years. <clears throat> but leave it up to the market to, de to, to decide whether uh, origination should be separated. <coughs> and we have more than one example in the book where we address this question of incentive compatibility that... <clears throat> and that's one of the problems when you're creating new institutions so rapidly and in a world in which the 
Uh, you have this self-reinforcing expectations of, of rising prices creating a momentum demand for houses and people using primarily other people's money to finance them, okay? Those institutions got created far too rapidly and, and sloppily. So that's, this is part of what we're trying to address in the book. Um, I, I appreciate the question and the point that there was uh, really a tangled mess with a lot of these mortgages once they were put into the securities and the legal structure of those securities and the resolution of, um, of delinquent mortgages and, and mortgages in foreclosure was not clearly worked out in advance. Um, I think that some of our next work will be uh, examining the differential performance of, uh, of banks that securitized versus banks that held their own mortgages. I'm looking at small and mid-sized banks compared to the larger banks and a number of other related issues. But we haven't, uh, we haven't delved at any depth into those issues in the it's book. And certainly worth pointing out, consistent with, with the story in the book on the balance sheet aspect of it, is securitization did drive additional leverage because banks had to hold so much less capital against same dollar in MBS than they would in whole mortgages. So that also added to the lack of capital in the system. I don't know if you would add anything, Dean. Yeah, just a quick thing. Um, I, I recall seeing a study, I'm sure it had been more recent work, but the Atlanta Fed, I, I believe that was, Atlanta Fed did a study fairly early on, I think it was like 2009, where they compared the rate of, uh, of uh, write-downs or um, uh, renegotiations between mortgages held in pools and mortgages that were still held by banks, and they didn't find a significant difference. Now, frankly, that surprised me. And I don't know if you looked at that I think there later have been, in the crisis. I remember that paper, and there have been papers that have found differences. So I, I, I think it's fair to say that that's a point being debated. Yeah. It certainly yeah. is. Uh, no, I don't feel strong in that yeah, one. No, I was, you know, it was a surprise I, I don't think me. we do know is the answer. Yeah. But there's a certainly a number of studies on that. Mark, just let me add Absolutely. one thing. Uh, we had occasion to meet with some uh, a company, Arch Bay Capital, in California, they had it's really interesting, and it shows you how the market process can work to repair household balance sheets uh, when the incentives are right. Uh, Arch Bay Capital bought uh, $600 million worth of non-performing loans from uh, Wells Fargo. Uh, they, got, they bought them 35 cents on the dollar. They went to work, uh, and, and their primarily object, objectives was to find, home, find those homeowners who could stay in their home, reduce their payments, and they took, they took it off the principal. All kinds of people, uh, you see, did negotiate a reduction in their payments, but it stretched. How did they get it? The, the loan was stretched and the interest rate was reduced. They still owe the same amount, okay? Uh, my uh, family... In 1934, we lost our Kansas farm to the bank, and it was good riddance. It was a clean break. I can, you know, we would have been 10 or 12 years uh, suffering in that black hole if someone had come and said, hey, you can stay here. All you have to do is continue to pay uh, nominal amounts. We understand it's hard, but you're still going to owe the same. And that to me, is what it means to be in a balance sheet recession. That kind of pain is not in the, in the models, okay? These are models of flows. They're not models of, they don't have tanks at the nodes that measure, measure equity. And when that's really low, the tanks need to be refilled. Uh, we have a question back here in the back. This is for Professor Smith. I'm trying not to freak out because I really enjoyed my experimental economics class in college, and here you are. Um, it's a privilege. Thanks for being here. My name is Luca Gattoni-Celli. Uh, this question is partially informed my experience working on Capitol Hill. Um, a key problem of creating political institutions seems to be constraining the actors within them to not grow their power, whether formally or informally, the basic agency problem. So what has your work in experimental economics taught you about that? <clears throat> uh, 
most of my work, very little of it, has, has addressed uh, political economy issues, okay? Uh, it's been, my work has addressed market performance, the elements that go into market for, uh, performance, and why it is that markets work so well when they work and work so badly when they don't work. Okay, and one of the insights that, came, that has come out of the, of the experimental work that links up with very strongly with the Great Recession is the tremendous contrast between the markets for goods that cannot be retraded and the market for goods that can, and in particularly, housing. Uh, Non-durable goods, uh, con consumer goods, constitutes 75% of private product. It's by far the largest and most important. Wow, do those markets for perishables behave well in the laboratory, but they have special features, okay? You know before you go to market whether you're going to be a buyer or a seller. When you go to, to, into the hamburger market, you're a buyer, okay? You go into the haircut market, you're going to be a buyer. You don't change from buyer to seller because of the price. Those, those things are hidden. We don't think about that day to day, okay? That, but that accounts for the incredible... Uh, stability of those markets, not only in the lab, but in the economy. But when it can be retraded, you have the possibility that people will buy because the pro they can resell it, not as, as final consumption. Now, uh, to come back to the question, this is, not, this is not understood, we think, adequately by policymakers, by economists, balance sheets and the balance sheet effects of retraded goods are not part of the standard uh, model. And the political economy is not set up, really, to be sensitive to that. Uh, the average person doesn't understand that difference, and the politician to get reelected doesn't have to take that in and worry about that. Okay. Vernon, if I could follow follow up on that with a, a question of my own, because I, I do think to me one of the unique contributions of the book is building upon the experimental literature. Um, and so to me, there were a couple of maybe suggestions to take away in terms of uh, if we could set aside the political economy and say, how would you design housing markets, for instance, in a way that would make the bubbles smaller, less frequent? Um, what would some of the suggestions be in terms of things like down payment or credit? Or are there anything the experimental literature suggests in terms of policy changes? Well, one of the things that came out of the Great Depression was not only uh, uh, margin rules, so changing the property rights uh, with regard to, to stocks, which, by the way, started before 1929. The private sector was already, as we point out, uh, uh, raising margin requirements. Uh, so we, we, we improved, I would say, the property rights system for stocks. Uh, there was a lot of changes made in, in the 1920s. Uh, banks, mortgage loans by the uh, commercial banks, and these were, these were the state banks, uh, were typically interest only. Only 15% of, the, of their mortgage loans were fully amortized. 85% of them either, either were interest only or partially uh, amortized, and that meant that there was a balloon payment. So people had, were getting mortgage loans of three, four, and five years and then rolling them over. And so we see that as a major important reason why the economy tanked in 1929. You don't find that in Friedman and Schwartz, a great book, one that we that we very much, uh, uh, very much uh, re uh, respect. Uh, but the the and I think if anything comes out of our book, except one thing, and economic historians take another closer look at the antecedents to the Great Depression, 
I think we will have served a, a, uh, an important, an important uh, uh, function. And I think in, I don't, in the book we talk about, we don't like the, I don't like the word regulation. It's about property rights. It's about incentive compatibility, okay? There isn't any such thing as a market that can function without a property rights system to under, uh, undergird it. It does not exist. And it's not a slam dunk to get those property rights correct, okay? And sometimes you have to go through a lot of pain to get it right. I think Dodd-Frank, there's too much emphasis on symptoms and not enough on basic incentives. Pr predatory lending, come on, there's pages and pages about predatory lending. Why are people forcing loans on other people? Because they have an incentive to. Ask that question and get that right and quit worrying about these symptoms and trying to control those. Thanks. George, do you have a question? Um, Ed? Hi, uh, Ed Pinto from AEI. So the question on incentive compatibility, uh, following up on your suggestion, would you extend that to the realtor who gets about a 6% commission? I'm sorry, sale? the broker? The, yeah, the real estate agent. Yeah. Good. Okay. In fact, I mentioned that, and we, we, that, that I'm pretty sure we cover that. Oh, yeah. Any of those up front? Because, uh, no, it, it's going to distort the uh, incentive. Uh, anybody that's part of that uh, mortgage uh, uh, evaluation, uh, uh, house evaluation process, uh, it's important to get those uh, incentives right. And, and I'm not saying that, uh, that, that we, we I'm, I would not argue that we're sure we got a ball right at our book. Have no idea that, that we, because that, this is a trial and error uh, process. And it's, it, it's very important to, to uh, study the areas, what went wrong. See, another example is the, uh, the, the incentives of the AAA uh, uh, tranche Radiant of the mortgage. Agencies. They had different in, in incentives uh, in terms of the claim on current income and the claim on assets. They had a preference to go into bankruptcy in many cases because then they got, uh, they got the, the first cut in bankruptcy. They just shared it with 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 the with the uh, lower tranches, if they had to. If you went in there and negotiated a a, a lower payments, okay. I think we've got time for one more question. If that right here in front. My question goes to, what is the incentive? change the current circumstances and where will that incentive come from it's quite clear that the markets have had problems with real estate and housing and the government seems to want to fix things that's sort of their basic objective in life we'll arrive and we will fix things now we're confronted with a huge deficit and debt situation and all that means where will the incentive come from or do you have any idea to correct that? Is, is anybody on the panel optimistic that we will correct any of this? Yeah. I'm not too worried about the debt and deficit situation. I am worried about the state of the recovery. I don't know uh, how long it'll be till we get back to something resembling potential GDP, full employment. Um, one of the things I think is really unfortunate is I, I don't think we've learned much of a lesson in terms of the focus on housing, home ownership as, you know, this panacea is wealth building, which, you know, I would have hoped given how many people, you know, I think well-meaning, you know, were pushing low, moderate income people to become homeowners of the idea that that would create wealth for them. And obviously it did not. And, you know, I don't anticipate we're going to have another collapse like what we just saw. But the reality was even absent that, there's good reason for believing that in many cases it's not a good thing for you know a moderate income person to be a homeowner. They're often not in stable employment situations, stable family situations. Buying a home, paying all these overhead costs, and then having to sell it again in two or three years—that's not a way to build wealth. And you know a lot of people are going to be in that situation. And I would have hoped that was a lesson that you know we'd learned, or our members of Congress, the administration had learned. I'm afraid that doesn't seem to have been the case. 
Um, I, I had a discussion with a real estate investor with about a, a $700 million portfolio of real estate in the West, and he had an, an interesting suggestion. Um, he suggested adjusting down payment requirements in a, in a counter-cyclical manner so that when the housing market is really strong, um, look for, you know, 10, 15% down payments. And when it's weak and prices are near the bottom, you, you could lower those down payments, especially if we anticipate that the market's going to start moving up and their equity position will move up with it. So, you know, a year ago might have been a reasonable time to have 5% down payments. Um, a time like 2006 or 2004 is a good time to have 15% down payments. Um, another and and you know one of one of the more insightful arguments that I came across in reviewing a lot of literature on real estate um, came from one of my graduate school classmates, Francois Ortelomagni, and he he pointed out that when you lower down payments, you have uh, say say they go from ten percent to five percent, you have a cohort of people who have been preparing to purchase homes. And they're now a sudden, you know, surge into the market of potential buyers. And as they come in, they're going to push prices up. So what we were doing between 19, well, between about 2001 and 2006 is consistently increasing the size of that pool of potential buyers, going from 10% to 5%, 5% to 2%, and eventually to zero. Um, pretty much anybody's a potential buyer when the down payment requirement is zero. So that creates a surge of demand. So we were working in very pro-cyclical ways with the incentives. And I think that that could be done more in, more intelligently. I want to thank our panel and, and, and thank our audience. Uh, there are books for sale out front and be on the second floor. And I want to welcome you all upstairs uh, for lunch. Thanks.